Um, and so he moves through that and he, and he exhorts them to stay faithful, to stay firm in their faith. Uh, but one thing that I, I really appreciate about the very close of this chapter, so the very last verse, verse 38, is, And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so one of the beautiful things that Christ Jesus has done for us, aside from redemption, is that God is not present with us geographically. Throughout all of the history of mankind, from when, from when um, the tabernacle was built, there was a geographic place for God. You went to the temple to worship God. His presence was there. Even, even the high priest that would go in once a year had a special rope that they would tie around him so that if something happened while he was in the Holy of Holies, they could drag him out because no one else can go in there. But notice here, they're going to the temple, but they're going to see Jesus. And so in Christ Jesus, the presence of God shifted from a geographic location to being with the people everywhere. Right? We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit in baptism. God is truly present with us. He says in Matthew 18, wherever two or three are present, are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so as 21 closes out, we really get a, a beautiful picture of this shift of the presence of God because the people are going to him. They're not going to the temple. Uh, and so just as 21 closes out, and I know we've, I think we've talked about that, so I don't want to dwell on all of that too much. But before I jump out of that, are there any questions, comments? I have a microphone. Seeing none, we're going to dive into chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Uh, and so this is something that's not the first time we've seen this, this fear of the people. Uh, and we don't really know exactly what this fear is. Uh, it could be a fear of an uprising, right? Because the people are flocking to Jesus. They love Jesus at this point. They're still going to him like he is the best thing since sliced bread, even though that's not been invented yet. They're flocking to him. And so it can be a fear of actually the people rising up against them. but they also really like the attention of the people on themselves. And so there also could be a little bit of, they're afraid that as the people wander away from towards Jesus, that, you know, we're, we're kind of losing our spot in the limelight over here. We don't know exactly what it is. We just know that they're, they're concerned with the people. And so they want to be crafty about what they do to put Jesus to death. And so, Fear is kind of driving how they want to approach this whole thing. And they, this isn't new for them. They've been plotting this for several years, ever since Jesus kind of started a rise in popularity. They've said, this guy's operating outside. He's coloring outside of the lines. So we need to shut him down. And they've been completely unable to. He has foiled them at every turn masterfully, you know, coming back to them and speaking scripture to them and and putting them in positions that they cannot possibly get out of. Uh, and so they're really upset with him, but they're also terrified of the people. And so they've got to find an interesting way to 
eliminate Jesus. And so, enter verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So right here, we see that even though the priests and the scribes, they want to be cunning, we've got something greater than just earthly forces at work here uh, in this plot. Satan is entering in to Judas Iscariot. Uh, and so I always think when I, when I read this passage of Scripture, I go back to Luke 4, to the temptation account, because the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness and can't get him to budge. Can't get him to budge at all, and he departs him until an opportune time. And it seems that the opportune time has come. The, the fervor of the people is for Jesus, but the religious establishment is totally against him. And so Satan comes back and he comes to Judas and he enters into him. And Judas, there's other passages where we find that Judas has kind of a thing for money. He's, a, he's kind of the, he's, he's the numbers guy of the group. And so he's struggled with that at times. And so getting revenue for this is something that we can see would be actually uh, something that he would seek. And this ties right in to what we've seen before with the chief priest being afraid of the people because the closing three words here are absence of a crowd. So I guess it's four words. Absence of a crowd. There, this, is, this is all trying to happen under cover of darkness. This is a covert operation that they're under as they pursue Jesus. Satan entering into the mix here, no doubt working in the hearts and minds of the religious leaders also at that point in time, but now explicitly, according to the Gospel of Luke, also operating in Judas at that point in time. Now, that takes us for the, through the first six verses of this chapter. Any comments or questions? On Not terribly controversial. No, hearing none. All right, we're going to move on towards the Passover. So starting at verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went out and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is normal. There's nothing, there's nothing alarming here for the disciples just yet. Passover is something that's been going on since the exodus from Egypt. They were commanded 
to celebrate this meal of remembrance. And we'll talk about that word remembrance here a little bit later in this passage. Um, And so as this starts and he tells them to go forward, they're like, okay, this is Passover. The same way that we have celebrated the Passover so many times before through our lives. The only little thing is, is, okay, Jesus, where are we going to go? Oh, we'll go and you're going to see this guy and he's going to go in this house and they're going to have a room for you, which Jesus obviously knows ahead of time what's going to happen. And so he sends them there. They trust that his word is true. They go to the city and found it just as he had told them. And so then they prepare for this meal of Passover, something something that's a major festival even to this day in the Jewish calendar. And many Christian churches even observe parts of the Passover. Uh, Anybody participated in a Seder meal before? Yeah, the Seder meal, that meal of remembrance, takes on a whole new meaning in light of Christ, and especially in light of what's going to take place really in the next couple of chapters here in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And so now we're in Jerusalem. They prepared the Passover in this upper room. I'm going to pause. Any questions or comments? You guys are quiet this morning. All right. I knew I could find at least one. (laughs) Go back to the first verse of that part. Okay. Could you explain, clarify Satan entering into Judas? Satan entering into Judas. So Satan is is now has entered into a much like at our baptism, the Holy Spirit enters into us essentially um, to try to give it a visual effect. It's like he's dug his claws in, in the heart and the mind of Judas and said, you are mine. He's tempting him. Judas's sinful nature. We, we all as sinful human beings have things we struggle with. Not a single one of us in this room is free from a struggle of some sort, right? Some of ours may be greater or lesser according to what society's standards are, right? Uh, horizontally here, there are things that, that levy a harsher penalty, right? Before God, all sin is bad. And so we all struggle with something. One of the things Judas struggled with was some of that fiscal, that money responsibility. And as such, the offer of money is very appealing to him. Now, we haven't gotten to that part yet, but he's struggling with that sin, that doubt, and Satan says, and he grabs on to him right there and won't let him go. All right. Tom Baker on KFUO one morning was talking about the fact that a person with the faith and Holy Spirit in him cannot be possessed by Satan. But in this case, that implies that yeah. Satan had lost his faith in Christ. Yes. Uh, that's actually a really excellent point, but thank you for that. The So when we, uh, if you were in 8 o'clock service, we just had a baptism in there. Technically, if you look at the words of baptism, it's a rite of exorcism in a way because we're inviting the Holy Spirit in, do you, and, and some of those questions that are asked and responded to. So this morning in, in Henry's case, being less than a week old, he can't answer on his own. 
And so parents, sponsors, congregation, when, when someone said, when we're asked, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? You're renouncing all those things. And then as the water is poured over the head of that child, combined with the word of God, the Holy Spirit enters in and takes up residence. And where God is, sin cannot be, evil cannot be. And so in us, in the Holy Spirit, the presence of God there, Satan cannot dwell in the believer. And so you're right. For Satan to enter into Judas and possess him in such a way like that would mean that his faith had been lost. Um, and so that's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, and so try to remember that when we talk about demon possession, and that's not even in what we're talking about today, but where the Holy Spirit is dwelling in a person, demon possession, I'm going to make a st- statement here, is not. Yes, I got to grab my microphone. Hang on. It's helpful. It's helpful for our friends on the radio. Luther's uh, order of baptism has an exorcism portion to it. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I think. I mean, sometimes we 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 conjure up images from the movie from a few decades ago when we talk about that. But it's a beautiful thing because we're saying beyond Satan, Holy Spirit enter in. Now, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. What a beautiful gift and a comforting thing. So Satan is not omniscient, so he didn't realize he was playing a role in God's plan, but he did know the, know the scriptures. Yes. So how was it that he didn't realize, and he knew that this was Christ. Yeah. So he, he didn't put the two together, I, I guess. You know... That's a great question. I think sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. You know, you, I, I actually don't know how to really answer that for you. He, he was so headlong wanting to get rid of the Messiah that that was all he could see, I suppose. And that maybe he didn't even fully understand God's plan of redemption because the disciples at this point, you're going to see as soon as the institution of the Lord's Supper is over, just how lost they still are um, as he gets done instituting the Lord's Supper. And then suddenly they're going like, so who's the greatest in this crowd? So earlier, or just a few minutes, seconds ago, you said that um, Satan can't be where Christ is dwelling. Right. When we're in the act of committing sin. <laughs> That's a, that is a great tension to live in, right? That we are sinner saints that, Though I am baptized into Christ, though the Holy Spirit dwells in me, I am still a poor, miserable sinner. Um, my nature is sinful and unclean, and so I'm still going to struggle with that. But just because I'm struggling with a temptation to sin doesn't mean that Satan is dwelling in me, right? He's in the world around me. He's providing temptations wherever he can to try to make us trip and stumble, but he's not living in me. And so that's, I think that's where the distinction is there. That's a very good, good point. Yes. Does Satan have a role in all sin? Hmm. Well, Satan is the tempter. And so, so he's actually a created being, uh, a fallen being. And so he has a role in temptation, but sin, Satan and sin are not the same thing, but he tempts to sin. That makes sense? good you good all right see now you guys are waking up you got it 
couple sips of coffee and yeah. Anything else on this section here on the preparations for the Passover before we get into the next section, verses 14 to 20, because they're awesome. I particularly like these verses. And then I chuckle about the ones following that. <clears throat> so here we go. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, Jesus knows what's coming. He's been looking forward to this, this specific meal. He's not necessarily looking forward to the cross. He knows that he needs to go to the cross. But this meal, it says he's earnestly desired. There's a longing in him to eat this meal with the disciples. And it's not the first one he's eaten with them. He's journeyed with a group of them for now three years. So this won't be the first Passover, but this is the last one, the last Passover. Because again, if you, if you remember from the beginning of our discussion today, this was instituted way back as God is rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so they've been observing this Passover and we don't really actually know a whole lot of detail about what this meal would have looked like in the first century outside of biblical accounts. That's actually kind of fascinating. Uh, Jewish culture and the celebration of the Passover has kind of adjusted and shifted across the course of history. So we know what a Seder looks like in 20th century Judaism, and we can even look a little bit back to some different periods of history. But that first century, we don't have an excellent picture of what that would have looked like, but they did. And so they're here celebrating this thing that they know, they love, it's familiar to them probably as familiar to them as for us saying the Apostles' Creed on Sunday morning. We know those words. We rejoice when we get to confess that faith in our Lord and Savior. It was familiar. And then he puts a little twist on it. Just a little change in the Passover meal for them. And he says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so he adds this, this end times, this eschatological perspective onto this dialogue here that he's having with the disciples as he's teaching them. He's pointing them to something beyond the here and now, beyond remembering, right? And I said, we're going to talk about remembering. I'm going to get there in this section. Beyond remembering the salvation from the Egyptians that they had been won, right? That the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed, the blood of which was spread 
over the doorposts and lentils that was sufficient for that one event. That one lamb without blemish, the blood of it would protect that family in that house from that one event. And they're remembering this all through the years. And when you look through the Psalms, you see it everywhere. This Exodus event is huge. It looms large in their history. And so he moves forward. And this is one of those passages of Scripture that is hotly contested and greatly debated throughout all time. And it divides different groups of Christians into different camps. And so I want to pause here for a minute because it's absolutely essential that we understand what Jesus is saying here, at least in, re- in relation to the supper. There are times when Jesus is speaking in parables. There are times when he's, you know, using different rhetorical devices. There's also times when he's speaking plainly. And so when we come to these verses here, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. The words there in the Greek, estin, that's is. It's this is the body mine. Is if you wanted to go really wooden with a translation. He's speaking plainly, he's speaking directly. This is what it is. And that's hard. Because we can't really explain what the heck that means. We want to. I, I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, I like cause and effect relationships. I like being able to like draw a line and figure things out. And that's gotten us into a lot of trouble over, over the years. And that's why different Christian traditions will interpret this passage differently as they apply Aristotelian logic to it and try to say, okay, so he said, this is my body. So let's try to philosophize how this actually happens. And we, we get to views like transubstantiation where we say, well, it actually changes what it is. And we would say something changes. Clearly, the Word of God changes things. And so we believe that that, that way for that piece of bread is truly Christ's body but it also still looks like a piece of bread. But he said, this is my body. And so as we try to peel back the layers of the onion, we find that we only get more and more lost. And that's both frustrating and comforting. And here's what I mean. The frustrating part is just that I want to figure everything out. I want to sort stuff out and be able to understand it. And God has given us clear pictures to understand of certain things in his words. But in other parts of his word, like this, he says this plainly. And the more I dig, the more cloudy it gets. But when I take him at his word, I can rest in what this meal is. And that's comforting because God's God and I'm not. And if I needed to fully understand all the things of God we would all be in real trouble. 
So there's times like this where we look at it and we say, well, Jesus said, this is my body. Okay, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said it. That's where I have to leave it. Um, and that can be really disconcerting and not, not necessarily satisfying in a lot of conversations with people because we live in a very empirical society that wants the scientific method, right? Or at least think they want the scientific method to be able to say, I can test this hypothesis and then I can prove that it's real instead of saying, no, Jesus said it. And if I believe that God's word is real, if I believe the full counsel of scripture, scripture is the inspired inerrant word of God, then I've just got to take some of these things and go, he said it, so it is. And so that's one of the reasons that when we come to the table, we say, this is the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given unto death for you. How is that possible? Because the word of God says so. And it's a beautiful thing. Any comments on that before I move forward? Because I, I know that uh, I, I saw some, some people that were thinking, and I knew there was going to be some questions or comments. So the rest of my family who aren't Lutheran mm -hmm. would say, oh, yes, but you guys kind of um, omit the rest of that verse. Yes. So that's the remembrance part, right? right. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yeah. So you provided the perfect segue into remembrance there. But before we, before we do that, is there any other comments or questions before I step into remembrance? So I got one, two, three, four here. <laughs> but I, I've got you, Dennis. So I'm assuming that, or should we assume that these verses are in chronological order? At this point, that's a great point. At this point in, in this narrative of the Passion, yeah, we're moving chronologically through the end of the Gospel of Luke here. Two cups or one? Ooh. So I would argue that there are two cups here at least, because if they're celebrating the Passover, the chances of them having the other cups, because there's always a cup for Elijah, and the little pieces of knowledge we have, I think, would point to there being two cups. So Yeah, so the first cup he gives to them, and says that they should partake of it among themselves. Yes. But it's then it's the bread and then the next cup. Right. So there would be two distinct. That At least that's what I would say. I am thinking to myself that as clueless as the disciples were about everything else, that they really... That that they couldn't, I, I doubt that they accepted that as uh, accepted what he said yeah. because they hadn't accepted the fact that he was talking about his death right. and his crucifixion. So yeah. they were receiving it, but I don't think they really grasped anything. So, yes, I think that's an excellent point, right? They, The understanding of the disciples is not there. And, and if we step out of Luke's gospel and into John's gospel is one of the best pictures of that to where throughout they have these little snippets of clarity and then they slip back into this confusion. And you're like, seriously, man, how can you hear and see this? And then the next set of verses be totally lost. And we're actually going to see that here as well. So the understanding, I like to say understanding that we just believe that it's the word of God. 
but the understanding the mechanics of the sacramental union there, that's not what God requires of us. Because if he required that, we would all be in real trouble. And so, so when I say it, understanding it, and thank you for bringing that up, I'm not saying that you really need to understand the way that fits together. The understanding is the resting in the word of God. That when he says it is, it is. That's, and that's the understanding because that I can get behind trying to understand how it is what it is. I don't know. Let's see. One and then two. I was puzzling about the fact that there are some uh, Catholics particularly believe in transubstantiation mm -hmm. and the fact that God gave bread separately and blood separately, bread, body, blood, would indicate to me that they do not combine. Mm. So that they do not, so that he gave them separately that the body and the blood do not combine? Okay. Yes. So, so, so what really, I think where a lot of that originated in the Catholic church was as they taught on the Lord's Supper and they and their doctrine on the Lord's Supper of transubstantiation, because they believe that it ceases to be bread and wine and becomes only body and blood, there is, I mean, there is a serious reverence for that. There is a period of time where there would be an, uh, an assistant, an altar boy that would follow the priest around with a patent, which is a little silver plate that would hold it to the chins of people receiving the bread so that any crumbs that fell would be caught on a patent and wouldn't go to the floor. Um, it's the same reason if you look in the chancel area of a Catholic church, you'll find kind of like a little secure vault where the, the host goes, the bread goes that's unused after the supper. Uh, and so across history, there was fear of, you know, what happens if a little wine dribbles in, in my beard? It's there and it, and it gets dabbed with a napkin and thrown in the trash can and things like that. And so they, they kind of stepped back from offering both the bread and the wine to the laity for that, for that reason. And so it just kind of, it kind of developed and it's something that brings sorrow to my heart because that's the presence of God in that meal. And so they weren't able to fully experience that. Now, does Jesus still love them or like, absolutely. Right. But, that was that originated from what they when they view that it actually changes they don't want anything like any and we don't want disrespect either right but there's a veneration there that occurs that's a little bit different um in their view uh i think perhaps the key verse is is where he says until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of god referring to the passover the Passover, the blood was put on the lintel, and the body of the lamb was eaten. Mm -hmm. And here we have Jesus talking about the fact that, well, you had the Passover, now you get the real thing. Yes. Yeah. And that's what it is. He's saying this is what it is, and they don't get it yet because he hasn't died on the cross yet. And I think we always have to remember that. They're, they're on the other side of the cross and people still love Jesus at this point in time. Like they're like in Jerusalem coming to hear him teach. Not everybody loves him, but a lot of people do. So the disciples, when they hear this, they're kind of like, huh, 
That's weird. And it would be it would be totally different from their previous Passover experiences. And so you're right. This is he's looking at a different perspective here. This may be a really stupid question, but I've got to ask. I don't understand the idea of drinking the blood, especially because these are Jews right. who keep kosher, which yeah. means you can't drink oh, the blood in the meat. And so now we're in the middle of Passover, right. and you're saying, here, drink my blood. Yep. Can you explain that? So, um, I don't know how much I can explain it as just to say that would be terribly confusing for them because they're going, wait, 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 wait. And because we haven't gotten to the point where all foods are declared clean or anything like that. So this is, this is a shocking, but Jesus has been saying shocking things to them all along the way, things that they're, they hear and they're like, he does. Yes. <laughs> right. And so, which probably adds to why the disciples hear it. And they're like, I hear the words that are coming out of your mouth, Jesus. I don't get them. I don't get it, but I hear them. And so, they would have heard that strangely, but at the same time, I think to what Ruth's comment was earlier, they're looking at a cup of wine and they're having this Passover meal. And so we've had centuries for theologians to study and write on this. And even as followers of Christ, we've read the Bible before. This is probably not the first time we've heard this passage. They're sitting there at a Passover meal and he says that. And have you ever had someone say something to you that you just didn't expect? Even if like, even if it's a good time of brain functioning. So it's like five in the morning for me and my brain's firing on all cylinders. It still catches you off guard. You're like, wait, what did he just say? I think it would have been a shock to them. Right. And, and he had said it before. And so that's, he it would be shocking to them nonetheless, but they're all processed. They're drinking from a fire hose right now. And so they're, they're kind of hearing this and moving, moving along. And it was part of the law, but it was part of the ceremonial law, right? Yeah. But at this point, they're still observing all of that. Like they've come to Jerusalem for Passover. They're going to offer their sacrifices. They're still, even in, in the early church, after, after Jesus has died, been raised again and ascended to heaven, there's a whole portion of Jewish Christians that still observe those laws, that still, I mean, at least up until the temple is destroyed, are still trying to observe that law. And and even today, you'll find Messianic Jews that will follow through with those things and still kind of live according to those the, to the Jewish laws, but then also believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so, yeah, it's it's a fascinating shift for the disciples. My question is about Jesus' phrase that he would not drink of the vine mm. until the kingdom come. Oh, yeah. Now, when does the kingdom come? Now, normally, I was taught or always believed we're talking about this, the last day. Yeah. But there are other references in terms of Christ saying the kingdom is at hand, the yes. kingdom is here. Uh, the next day he dies on the cross, right. uh, which is the coming of the kingdom. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of post-resurrection occurrences where Jesus is mm -hmm. at table right, uh, with his disciples. Yeah. So I think there's two things to unpack there, and that's a great, a great topic to bring up. So when we hear kingdom of God, 
when when we talk about kingdoms in our context, kingdom is a is a noun, right? So like the United Kingdom, it's a noun. That's a the name of a country. But this word in Greek is can be translated as reign of God. So a lot of times when we hear in in Jesus speaking kingdom of God, we can switch that out and say reign of God. And a reign to reign is a verb, right? It's something that's happening. Someone is reigning or it can be describing what someone is doing. And so the reign of God, I like I like that is here. And this is the tension that we live in as Christians is that the incarnation of Jesus, when he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when he died on the cross, this is the inbreaking of the reign of God into this place. Now, God has never not been in control, but the reign of God is here and is coming. And so, the reign of God is present here among us today, but will be fully realized on the last day. And we'll be able to see it for all of its glory. And so we as Christians live, this is the two kingdoms doctrine, right? We live in two kingdoms. The kingdom of the left being the earthly terrestrial powers, right? There's laws and there's police and there's governments and there's wars and rumors of wars and all of these things going on. We also live in the kingdom of the right, which is the reign of God. Now, God's umbrella extends over the kingdom of the left too, right? It's not, he doesn't just have right hand control and there's a wall here. And so we just hang out on this side. We exist in both. Um, but the reign of God is both now and not yet. And it's one of those paradoxes, one of those tensions that we live in as Christians, realizing that the presence of God, the reign of God is very much something that is here today. But the full realization of that is going to be on that day when he comes riding in on the clouds and all things are made new. The great question. And what was the second part of that? Because I, I lost my train of thought because that was a good one. Basileia kingdom. No? All right, Ruth. I'm looking at the word fulfilled, and I think that makes it clearer that, you know, when you say fulfilled, the, the, uh, when he's talking about fulfillment, he's talking about his crucifixion. So that's the way I interpret it, that that means he won't, his crucifixion was coming up very quickly. Yeah, so his crucifixion was, and that was fulfilling the requirement of the law. But he also distinguishes, I think this is the second part of what you were just saying a moment ago, Mark, that he does fulfill the law in that, but that meal is set apart. And so saying, until I eat it new with you in the kingdom of heaven, we're looking, we're looking at end times perspective there. Because he does... He does rise from the dead, and then he, he spends time with the disciples. He eats with them, um, but in a very different way from what he's talking about here as this sacramental meal, although he wouldn't have used the term sacramental. We came up with that word later. <laughs> very good. It is finished. 
Yes. So, so we've got the inbreaking, and then we await the second coming. So the now, the not yet. All right. So the other thing we said we'd talk about is remembrance. Because you're right, that is a place where we get some, some tension as we talk through this. Because they were commanded to eat this Passover meal to remember or in remembrance of the deliverance that God had worked on their behalf from the Egyptians. And when we say remembrance, what are the things that we think? What does it mean to remember? It means, means to have it stuck in my brain and remember that thing. In the commentary on this, I was, I was reading through this and, and saying, okay, how, how do we unpack this properly? Um, I think it's a who remembers whom conversation. And Art Just, who wrote the commentary on this, he wrote these words, certainly both are true. That would be God remembering us or us remembering God. But God is the one who first remembers his promises in Christ and who prompts our response of remembering in faith. And so there is an aspect of this meal that I do remember what Christ did for me, that I remember the salvation that's been won for me. But I also know that he said, this is my body, this is this cup is that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And when we look at further on language, especially as Paul's writing his epistles to the churches, we find that, that this was very much held as, as a sacramental meal, as something that is. And so the remembrance there is not saying this is a symbolic meal. This is not a, something that we just do so that we don't forget what Christ is in. Now, that certainly is a part of it, because as we, as we approach the table of the Lord and receive those gifts, we absolutely are reminded of what he's done. He's promised to be present in that meal with us. And so because he's present with us, because he said this is what it is, we trust that it is. And that's, again, not a very satisfying legal argument, to button that together, but the remembrance goes both ways. And we can't remember him until he has and, remembered us. And are we, though, also remembering that he's given this sacrament? Yes. He's given his body. Yeah. He's given his blood. Right. I mean, we're not adding to Scripture to say that. No. Yeah. You're, you're remembering all of those parts. Um, but it doesn't mean his word of remembrance doesn't mean that it isn't what he said it is. And so there's both and there, maybe a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, it is what Jesus said it is. And so, like I said, I, I can't, there's not a big, long, drawn out legal argument, empirical argument that you can make besides to take Jesus at his word. Yeah, but the Passover was an active remembrance of the original Passover. Mm -hmm. It is not just a thought yeah. or a memory. 
It is an action that yeah. is taken. Right. And they participate mm -hmm. by the Passover in the original Passover. Right. So remembering that Passover by what they do actively. Yeah. And that's and that's a part of it. You've gathered together. You that's why when COVID came for in relation to the Lord's Supper, everyone was like, What do we do with this? Because it's a gift given to the church to be celebrated together in these different ways. And so COVID happened, we had to answer all kinds of questions about what does it mean to gather together to actually participate in the supper? How do we do that? Do we abstain for a while uh, until such time as we're able to gather again? <laughs> you know, COVID presented some unique challenges. That's what I will say. <laughs> some very unique challenges. I think in addition to all of that, when we look at the second half of verse 20, mm -hmm. this cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood mm -hmm. establishes a huge break point. Yeah. Between the old and the new. Yeah. And therefore establishing a line in the sand right. saying, we have now passed into this new covenant and become a part yes. of us. And therefore it is new. Right. So thank you for bringing that up. And so this new covenant would have been language that would have stirred things in their minds because after the exodus <laughs> from Egypt, not too long after that, once we get to Exodus chapter 24, um, where there is a covenant established. Moses uh, sprinkles the blood on the people, and then him and, and Nadab and Abihu, I think it is, they go up on the mountain and they actually eat a meal in the presence of God, which kind of seals the covenant. God has made this covenant with them. They say, yep, all the stuff that God said, we're going to do. Blood is sprinkled, meal is eaten. So as he says this, as he says this, this is familiar language. And they're saying, okay, there was this covenant. Now he's saying there's this covenant. And they would recognize that, but you're, but you're absolutely right. But it's still at this point in time, the disciples are going, what does that mean? Because there's like, they're, I'm, I promise you, these guys are grappling with what these words mean. Um, and really wrestling to try to unpack exactly what it is that Jesus is saying, because they don't have any idea what the next 24 hours are going to bring. I mean, we're, we're, we are close to the crucifixion right now. Um, and so their worlds are going to go topsy-turvy like that. All right. Anything else? What's that? Yeah. So remembrance. Yeah, we were unpacking this this idea of God remembering us and us remembering God. Uh, it being not something that's about saying what the meal is, but that the remembrance goes both ways. Because in in the absence of God remembering us, we cannot remember Him. He remembered us. He calls us to faith, and then we're able. To remember him. Remembrance is also that he is both God and man. Right. Oh, yeah. There's there's all parts of it. Right. That 
he is who he says he is, right? The beautiful part is today is we don't have many people that will argue that Jesus was actually a flesh and blood human being. Um, the divinity part is what really people struggle with. And so, but he is who he says he is. I am cool. You're a guy. You're a man walking around. You're also true God. That's where, and that's where the struggle comes in. And we have to remember both pieces are true. I read in a book about this one time where the author took the word apart to remember. Yeah. Uh, so if we sit around and visitors and or family members and we're trying to remember something that happened. Yeah. We're putting it back together again or those pieces. Uh-huh. And then he also talked about when you think about that and you think about how in the psalm uh, he remembers our sins no mm-hmm. more. God is not the one who dredges up these remembrances and holds them, cues us. It's Satan who does that. Yeah. One other aspect about that is, I think Paul points out that it's also proclamation. Mm -hmm. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim proclaim the Lord's death. That's right. Yeah. I like that. Break down the word remember. Because when we remember things... We remember them as a group. I can remember some things on my own from raising our kids, but when Jessica and I are together, we remember more things, right? And we remember different things about it. And so that act of coming together, like that re-member, gathering together. I'm I'm still not not getting a clear understanding of how I would argue against someone who would say that that it's a metaphor and like and like where the bread is a is a metaphor for his body and yeah. when he says this cup that is poured out for you it he's he's the the cup is like Jesus is the cup that that is poured out mm-hmm. for us, and yeah. Furthermore, yeah, it's. I mean, it is honestly when we approach it, and this is. I think it's something that's important for us to remember as Christians as we approach these things. When we put our own lens on things, because we have every one of us, no matter who we are, approaches everything with a bias. We have certain lived experiences, knowledge, experience bases that we bring into a text. Um, And so we have to filter that. And it's hard, but when we take Jesus at his word, when we look at the words that he says, it's not metaphorical. It doesn't appear to be metaphorical language, right? It appears to be very literal language that he's using. And so that's the way the church has interpreted that over the course of all of history. Um, And so, and obviously there's been breaks in that along the way, but the church has recognized that word as plain language, essentially, not metaphorical. And so it's, it is hard because trying to build an empirical argument for that, when you can't show how that is what it is, means that it's something that's taken on faith. 
And so as we engage in conversations, I've, I've talked to lots of people over the years about that. And in the end, I have to say, that's something that we take on faith. Jesus said it is, we believe it, and we have to leave it there. Um, and again, I also fall back on that. We cannot understand the hows and whys of all of the things that God does. We are the creature. He is the creator. If I could understand all things of God, that would either make me God and we'd all be in trouble or that would erase my need for God, neither of which are true. Um, and that's something I think inside of our, in, even inside of ourselves, in our sinful nature, we recognize that need, even if we push back against it. Yeah, a couple more and then we'll have to close up for the day. It's interesting that the words of institution in Mark and Matthew are much simpler. Yeah. They go into remembrance. They're very, very literal and they don't yeah. have these these connotations. Yeah, it, it is. And then we end up, so we look there and then we end up looking at Pauline, you know, language in the Corinthians and things like that when it comes to to those words as well. Okay. One thing I want to point out before we dive in much well because we can't really dive in further than this today we're almost out of time uh when when we see what's happening here the disciples are gathered together in the upper room jesus is saying these things and he says for you and who is sitting at the table with them judas is sitting there peter is sitting there all the disciples who within the next 24 hours are going to vacate right? Satan's already at work in Judas for you. Peter, who's never going to deny anybody, is there at the table, who before the rooster crows will deny Jesus. And all the rest of them are going to run and flee for the hills. And so even knowing all of this ahead of time, Jesus still says, for you. And that's an amazing part of this because we can be assured that Christ's blood that he shed for us on the cross was the atonement for all sin. Not just for the sin of a few, but it covered the sin of all. And so called the faith, we believe in that. And that's how we're connected to Christ through things like the waters of baptism and through believing in him, not by things that we do. And that is all offered to everyone, not, not just a select portion of the population. It's available. It's been accomplished for all. And that's something that can be really hard for us as Christians at times to say, wait a minute, you mean Jesus died for that guy too? Right? We've probably all been there where we cross our arms and we're like, ugh. That guy is the worst. But the truth of the matter is, even the worst serial killer with the most atrocious crimes, if the Holy Spirit moves that person to faith, and in faith he believes in Jesus, there is a spot at the table for that person too, even in the 11th hour of life. Because Jesus said, for you, even while his betrayer and his denier were sitting at the table, All right, guys, we are, we are there. Thank you so much for being here with us this week. It's good to see you guys. Have a wonderful 4th of July out there, and we'll see you back.
next Sunday. God bless.